So now more than ever, I feel like art should have this role of helping someone out. Imagine like all the fashion companies around that are not selling right now, they should dedicate themselves to making masks. It's a no-brainer. I want to see hundreds of fashion companies do that. It's starting to really freak me out scrolling on Instagram when then I see an ad for some luxury good and I'm like, you're fucking kidding me. Really, this should not exist at this point. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Blissfully Aware, a podcast about rooting into purpose and exploring ways of creating a positive impact through strategy and design thinking. I'm your host, Iwana Friedman, and you just heard Daniela Groza. Daniela is a multimedia artist born in Romania and based in Brooklyn. And I wanted to share her voice with you because she's so embedded in the creative community She's a photographer, a performance artist, a writer, a cook. You might know her from her project Be Kind For Real or from Creative Mornings Book Rust. And in this crazy, strange time, I really feel a yearning from this community to talk about the role of creativity in a time like this. How can we access it? How might we use our creative juices to feed back into the community and the causes that we care so much about? What does that look like day in and day out? And what might be some of the tensions right now between being able to make art, think about it, deliver it, and then surviving, right? So you're about to hear all about her adventures, driving an Uber, Lyft, taking nurses to work, and chiseling time to still create, be it in the kitchen or in camera. Sit back and enjoy, and I hope this finds you well, my friends. Good morning. Oh my God, how crazy to meet you like this. Isn't it? How are you doing? <laughs> I think I'm a little in shock and I'm trying to push that feeling away because things are happening so fast and every morning. I've always had New York Times delivered to my inbox, but I never actually read it unless it was some hot headline. And every morning this past week, I just wake up when I read what's going on and I see the cases go up for Corona. And then for whatever reason, I feel like waking up my girlfriend to tell her what's going on. And she's like, oh, no, I'm just going to go back to sleep. <laughs> it's so terrible. I don't know what's happening. I don't think I understand what's happening. I think I can relate. Yeah. How are you? We're in a little bubble out here. Nothing crazy is happening in terms of health nearby. But we have family who... They work in hospitals and they're already seeing insanity. Yeah. Shortage of supplies, people not being able to have visitors. It's like a dystopian nightmare from what they describe. And it's so weird to be physically separate from that. You know, it's almost like a silent something happening elsewhere. Yeah. Well, that's how it felt for us until last Monday when Monlili lost her job. I was still making plans to go to Romania and work on this project. Right. 
you know, and as of last Monday, it just totally was like, what are we going to do money-wise? That's the biggest fear at this point. Mm -hmm. That's real. <laughs> so real. And I have some savings and we do have money for rent for this upcoming month. But what if this goes on for three, four months? So if I do have reserves, do I pay rent? And every day it's flip-flopping between paying next month's rent or not. Just to make sure that I have money to survive on, you know? And I feel terrible. I'm a very correct person. I've always paid my rent on time. And it's just like knowing at both of us. <laughs> We're so paralyzed that we don't even know what to tell the landlord. It's, just, it's not an option for us, you know? Totally. I was going to ask you, is your landlord in touch with you guys? No, it's a little strange because Lily said, you know what, I think he should have texted all of us at this point because it's his house on the line in the end. And he just redid this brownstone a year and a half ago. We all moved in at the same time, you know. He knows both Lily and I because we have stayed in touch with him. He knows where in the industries that we're in. And, you know, just to be like, hey, what's going on? Hey, you don't have to pay rent. Like, I don't have to pay mortgage for the next three months. So don't worry about anything. Do they freeze a mortgage in Jersey also? No, not that I know of. Okay, because they did it in New York. So at least I know my landlord doesn't have to pay mortgage here. Ah, that should trickle down to you. Yeah. When I read about the mortgages, I was wondering, why didn't you go even further and say for tenants who cannot afford rent at this point, no rent, freeze the rents too. Because if that message is clear on paper and landlords are aware of it, then we don't have to have the stress of having to tell our landlords, hey, you know, like, I'm so sorry. This is obviously unprecedented. Obviously, it has to trickle down. I, I was reading the other day, it's 26,000 restaurants closed down and 10,000 bars. Imagine how many employees are out of a job or not, even with the savings that I have. What do you do? I don't know, whatever. So we're paralyzed, basically, at this point. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I can't sleep because I keep on thinking about the text I'm going to have to send him. And I also have an apartment in Romania that I send money to. I think the lady over there may be a little better about the situation, but I don't know. I have no idea how people are going to react because I think we're all in shock and we're all freaking out about where our next paycheck is going to come from. Yeah, so many people are in that same boat. There's no way to have planned for this. No. Are you still shooting among all this? Yeah, I was shooting. I have um I was driving in Manhattan yesterday. Business is really slow. I'll tell you about this. So there's a famous photo of Yosef Kudelkas. This is my version of it. On 42nd Street at 6 p.m. on a Sunday. First of all, you cannot stop there ever. It's on Park Avenue on the bridge. There's no way. And I've always wanted to shoot from there, you know. And then yesterday I was just driving around without a ride because it's so slow. And I'm like, oh, fuck, this is like anarchy. I can do whatever I want. I'm just going to stop the car. Just take the pictures. And I did, and nobody cared, obviously, because there's no cars around. Definitely no cops around. This is history. This is crazy. <laughs> totally. So you're still driving around with your camera regularly? Yes. Last Monday, when the restaurant shut down, I was expecting a full shutdown of the Uber and Lyft systems. So I, every day I wake up thinking I'm not going to have a job. And the messages from Uber and Lyft have been coming on alternate days, almost every day, saying, stay on the road, be safe, we're trying to get supplies to you. It hasn't happened yet. 
their hubs are closed now. So that's a problem because I cannot pick up supplies if indeed they will have them. They're probably going to have to ship them to my house. And Uber sent us a message a couple of days ago saying that they're working with the city of New York where they're trying to keep drivers on the road to secure rights for people who still have to go to work. And Lyft is doing something similar. Uh, And I think they're also looking for funds to support us while ridership is down because it has gone down. Last Monday, actually, because people were panicking, I had the best day in a year. How many rides do you give on a normal day? Average between 15 and 25. Right now, it's about eight rides a day. I still put in eight hours. Yesterday, I couldn't because I've been working every day for the last two weeks. Today would be two weeks since I last took a day off. And I was like, I got to go home. I'm so tired. It's exhausting to just drive around and try to pick someone up because it's true. I would say the last three, four days, my passengers have been primarily nurses, young people who get groceries and they can't carry the groceries because they're in large quantities. And people who have to go to work. Yesterday, I had this guy, Angel, who is a food distributor. So he has to be at work to distribute food to supermarkets. Let me tell you, when I pick up a nurse, I am both grateful for their work and they're grateful for me. And they say, thank you so much for your work. And I'm like, thank you so much for your work. However, I had two days without sanitizer in the car and I kind of freaked out a little bit. I was like, oh shit, this nurse came in full gear in my car. She told me specifically she works with coronavirus patients and she's had two patients die in the last couple of days. I don't know what germs she left behind. And I cannot clean because I have no sanitizer whatsoever. It makes me sad because then I realize, okay, so my car is also a vehicle that can spread the virus. So what do I do? These people have to get to work. I'm pretty sure they were advised not to take the train. I think their Uber and Lyft rides will be subsidized by the state if Uber and Lyft secure some kind of agreement with the city. But as long as I'm not provided sanitizer in the car, I cannot guarantee safety. And that's awful. Wow. How are you protecting yourself? Two days ago, I went to see my good friend who lives down the street. And we did the social distancing, but we're like, we have to see each other. So it's four Romanians. I'm just five blocks away from them. So I brought my own beer. I brought my own bottle opener. And we're just like standing there six feet apart and we were talking and Mona, whose yard we uh, inhabited for a few hours, she said, listen, I have gloves. I'll give you my gloves. I'm like, dude, you need them too. She has children. And she said, no, 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 just take them because you need them in the car. So she gave me a full bag of gloves. However, I don't know how many pairs there are, maybe 20, 30. I go through three or four pairs a day because I go to the bathroom. So I'm touching all this stuff, you know, and I have a sanitizer spray now, uh, 70% alcohol. That'll probably last me another week. And yesterday, a former passenger who's also Romanian texted me. I posted a picture with me and with the gloves and the spray. I'm like, I'm going to go out there. And she texted me right away. She said, listen, I live on the Upper East Side. I have masks. Come get them right now. So I was about to pick up a ride. Thank God the ride was towards the Upper East Side. And I just dropped off this guy and I went straight to her. Within 20 minutes, I was at her house and she gave me a 95 mask and a regular mask. 
But again, I don't know how long are these going to last me. I mean, when you're in and out of a car and you have to go to the bathroom, you come back, you realize how many things you can do wrong and spread those germs. Like at one point, do I put my phone in my pocket, mm-hmm. you know, open all these doors? Do I wash the gloves when I go to the bathroom or do I wash my hands? You know, do I discard completely and then I touch doors again? It's like... And because I want to be as safe as possible, I don't even think we should be on the road, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to have it 100% clean. I cannot spray after every single person in the car. So this is not sustainable. Yeah, what do you do? I know these people need rides, and I know the nurses need to get to work. And I'm not making any profit at this point. I'm making enough money to pay rent for the car, and that's it's a lot. And a little extra to cover gas and a little extra to cover food. Whereas before I would make between six and $900 profit every week, imagine. Which is why I was able to have some savings. But again, if I pay rent, my credit card bills and food without any income whatsoever, I will run out in about two months. So what is the role of art in all this? (laughs) You know, that's the question. What do we do? I have to go back a little bit in my personal history because I've never considered myself an artist. And I was talking to a friend of mine, a curator, yesterday morning, and art is luxury at this point. In my head, coming from a relatively small town in Romania, compared to New York, I mean, you know, from Constanza, art seems such a lofty thing to do. I'm not saying it's the truth, because it's not. There's many facets to what art is, obviously. But... It's felt like luxury. And especially when you come to New York and encounter art and artists in New York, that idea is amplified. Art is a luxury. And who buys art? It's people with a lot of money that supports these like mega artists, right? So I've always had this tension between calling myself an artist and creating art. I'm almost like cynical, of course, because I'm Romanian, like, oh, come on, I'm an artist. What does that even mean? So the only way to marry these ideas of being an artist and making art not for the elite, it was to do the Be Kind For Real project, right? It was the only way that made sense to me when calling myself an artist. I'm an artist because I do art that helps someone in need and someone who has no idea and doesn't care about these lofty descriptions of what art is or this kind of art and how this like hand is painted and blah 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 I love that I love that I donate money I've been donating money to this family for three years that will never get what the fuck I'm doing even though be kind for real is pretty straightforward and I I try to keep it as simple as possible I had many ideas about this project But I always came back to this. It has to be simple. It has to be understood by 90% of people around. I can't come around and be like, oh, you know, like, be kind for me as this and that. And yes, I can totally wrap it up in this fancy description. But in the end, it's just a project to help someone out. Sure, the words are based in semantics. And if I go into every word and why I chose that word to put on the T-shirt... I can go on and on. I can write a novel about it. But in the end, all you need to know if you buy that shirt is I'm donating 50%. This is the only way I can be an artist. And sure, I wish everyone saw it the same way, but it's not going to happen. And I don't, thank God, I don't think that way, you know. And so now more than ever, I feel like art should have that role, just like any other industry should have this role of helping someone out. 
I was talking to Lily yesterday and I'm like, imagine like all the fashion companies around that are not selling right now, they should dedicate themselves to making masks. It's a no brainer. And she said, actually, Christian Siriano is doing that already. I want to see hundreds of fashion companies do that. It's starting to really freak me out scrolling on Instagram when then I see an ad for some luxury good and I'm like, you're fucking kidding me. Really? This should not exist at this point. So the way I see art now to come back around is the way I've always seen art. It has to help someone out. You know, I can wallow in my pain and my existential crisis all day long and create and whatever, sure. But it doesn't help anyone else. As artists, I'm pretty sure we're all a little bit narcissistic. What am I doing? How can I create? It's about me and my creation. And there's very few artists in the world that have erased their names and said, this is just for you, you know, very few. And I think they're deemed a little crazy, too. (laughs) Art, same role as before. We have to help someone out. And now I signed up for this special task force for Lyft to help these health workers. So through pictures, because I have a following on social media, I'm trying to get some message out there and get images out as they come and try to have fun with it a little bit, because otherwise I definitely see so much potential (laughs) just creating, coming out with lots of art out of this. But we also have to face the tragic. Now I'm thinking I need the humor. I need to bring back some humor because I've been a little bit humorless this past week just because it's been so up and down, you know. But I really believe in humor. And it's too bad that in art it's not revered. It's the greatest thing in the world. I can get really silly. And if I have a partner, which I do now, who's also silly, we can keep ourselves afloat like that, you know. Yeah, it feeds the heart. I actually wish I could stay at home just for two weeks, just to like relax, because I have so many ideas and, you know, I cook a lot. I'm grateful I can still work a little bit and at least put food on the table, but I I need a break. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Today I'm going to take the day off because I think it's going to be an interesting week ahead. Recharge. Yeah. Do you shoot film or do you shoot digital? I have two cameras now, film, 35 millimeter and the medium format. The medium format is my primary camera. I've been shooting with it for the last eight years. And the 35 millimeter, I just brought it back from Romania. So I'm trying things out with it. That's like my second camera. I use my medium format. This is how I frame it. That's the title of the chapter of whatever I'm shooting. And then with the 35 millimeter, I try to fill in the blanks, you know, and take more shots with it because it's also more affordable. And lots of pictures with a phone. Mm-hmm. I haven't really found my stride yet with what's happening because it's it is sad and I think I have a sadness that I haven't tapped into yet. But soon enough, if I have the luxury to have a car, even if I don't have rides, I want to go to the city at six in the morning and see that and experience something that I've never experienced before. Because it's not just visually, but the feelings that come up. Even yesterday when I was on the Park Avenue Bridge, it's breathtaking. What did you feel? First of all, I felt like a rebel, which it's a feeling that I thoroughly enjoy. And then deep sadness, because you realize that you have the cabs that are waiting for a fare, and they may wait there for hours and hours and hours. So then you go deeper into everyone's story, and you think, oh man, like these people, are they going to be able to pay rent? Do they have children? How old are they? Are they in danger of getting coronavirus and dying? Because they don't protect themselves either. 
and then you see the people on the street who are still walking around and then you're thinking oh these people are probably okay they live in manhattan they can afford to live in manhattan therefore there's a 90% chance they have a job they can do from home and they have no idea what others are going through people like myself do you always put yourself in other people's heads like that all the time it's fun for the most part but this time it's like mm. <laughs> i think it's important i mean i think that's where empathy stems from to put yourself in the other person's shoes even when you're a little abrasive with someone i feel terrible if i have to be a little bit mean sometimes but then i'm like oh but this friend of mine who's really a great person would probably do the same and won't feel guilty about doing this mean thing you have to do that sometimes you know i guess because i am extremely sensitive and sometimes i don't know what's right or wrong so i have to i have to go in someone else's head I do that too. I have two girlfriends and we kind of grew up together, not in Romania, but in DC. And they're very different from each other. But whenever I come across something that's really hard in life, I do one of two things. I either imagine them beside me, supporting me, mm -hmm. or I try to put myself in there. Like what would Severine do in this situation if she was faced with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When did you first start doing that? When did you notice that you were doing that? I actually have quite a vivid memory of this. It's kind of funny and it may not seem like it's related, but I think it's related. So half of my family is from Craiova and we used to spend summers there. And we went to see a movie at, at a cinema very close to where we were staying there with my great aunt. And I remember walking out of the theater with a few friends and the movie was, I believe it was Gladiator. And I got out of the cinema and I felt like I was that guy. <laughs> like I was really strong and powerful and I could just take anything down. And for the remainder of the day, I felt like I could do anything and I could take on anything. It felt very real to me that I could be someone else, you know? I must have been nine, ten years old, mm. something like that, right? Yeah, so that's my earliest memory of that. And then the next memory I have with this and actually putting it in words was with my professor in Italy. I went there briefly to study photography and my professor Simone, really wonderful guy. He knew my personal story, the situation with my mother and my father and my sister. And he felt for me, he's like, you're really kind of alone out here in Italy and the school is not helping you out to stay here. Let's work on projects together. I'll help you out. And for whatever reason, the discussion came up with how I fell out against all these entities at school mm -hmm. because I was promised something when I went to that school and the promise just fell through the first day I arrived in Italy, basically. And I said, well, the only way I can put it is I try to be different people at different times so I make the right decision. And so I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to stay in Italy for as long as I can. But I try to think about what you would do in this instance or, um, I don't know, my partner at the time. And that's how I learned from people because I wasn't able to learn from my parents. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, that's strange. He actually didn't see it as a good thing. And that affected me a little bit because I was really sensitive back then about what was happening more so than I usually am. And he thought it very strange that I have this quote unquote ability to put myself in someone else's shoes and, you know, make decisions based on how others would react to a certain situation. So that's the second memory I have of that. So I've been pretty conscious about doing that. 
And then I've discussed it with my best friend and other friends in the meantime. And it's a good thing, actually, <laughs> to be able to do that. That makes you the opposite of a monster. <laughs> Say more. <laughs> right now, this craze with spirituality has a deep problem. It's related to us. I'm going to include myself in this category. Or I used to be in this category where we have this need to tell others how to live life and how it's better to be this way or that way. And I actually, I just did that basically just now. I don't think people are monsters if they're not able to put themselves in other people's shoes. It's just, I am this way and you are this way and this other person is this way. And why spirituality, I think, is not really taking the right course, maybe, let's put it that way, is that we, we keep on actually alienating people instead of bringing them towards us. So it's easy for me to say, oh, you know, if more people put themselves in other people's shoes, then would be a better world. The moment you say that, you're actually alienating people, you see, because to speak about these things is extremely different than actually putting it in practice. I don't even have words to describe this. Maybe the only person that would have the words to describe this is this sage, Gurdjieff, that I no longer am interested in, but he did put it the right words. I have a couple of his books. I'm trying to stay away from everything, philosophy, all that shit. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to read it. I don't care. It does not matter to me anymore. It's bullshit at this point. <laughs> <laughs> How come? Again, coming back to what's happening and, it, you know, everyone is has some kind of advice for other people. Like, you have to do this, you have to do that. Because we personally go through some things and we find some kind of personal formula to get through some things. But it doesn't apply to other people. Am I to say that I haven't learned from some philosophers no of course i've learned from philosophers i'm really grateful that books were put forth and ideas and concepts on how to live of course but in the end i don't think we found the right way to get into people's hearts and to have a profound change and that's okay because i think the moment we start thinking we're going to change the world and my formula is you know the greatest that's exactly the moment where we fail to have people understand things beyond their own personal knowledge, you know. Life and who we are is so complex. I mean, you can read Krishnamurti all you want. If, however you grew up in your genetical makeup, you're not geared towards philosophy or spirituality. All that Krishnamurti put forth is bullshit and nonsense. And now I agree with it. If you had asked me maybe three, four years ago, hey, like, do you think this is an actual sage and you could learn something from this person? Oh, my God. I know I sounded like a crazy person in the cab speaking about Krishnamurti and Gurdjieff and whatnot. I can see myself from outside and I'm like, oh, my God, crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's OK. I'm actually happy I went through that phase. But now I'm like, no, there's no way. I can't even tell Lily, like, dude. Oh, yeah, you're like, if you're a little depressed, go read Gurdjieff. I can't say that. That sounds insane to me. You know what I mean? So people's genetical makeup and the way they grow up and the things that they were around for so many years, their formative years, you cannot push people towards this, like, ultimate truth. I don't think there's an ultimate truth. 
And I don't think there's any good formula for this life. I think there will always be villains, and I think there will always be psychopaths in the world, and I think there will always be sages in the world, and there will always be people who read books and learn from them, and also people who just learn from working the land. It's the same thing in the end. How'd you realize this? I feel like I'm saner than ever when I started on this path to be sane is when I stopped preaching and telling people what to do and how to do it. Because that to me is bananas. If I formulated like, oh, this is what I think, opinion, and also inject that with a little bit of humor, I think it's really important to laugh at yourself a little bit. That actually opens you up to other people's opinions and other people's ways of life. And that's maybe a little bit of the secret of like feeling good at all times. I haven't had a bad day in two years. Yesterday was the anniversary. In spite of all the stuff that's going down right now, I don't know how people experience depression or bad days, but I can tell you for myself, up until two years ago, I would have like two, three days, maybe every 10, 14 days where I just felt really lost and I would just descend into this existential abyss that I could not yank myself out of. And I was so used to it that I thought it's part of normal life. Did not cross my mind that I could live without those dips. And I have been, and it's amazing. So you face tragedy, what we're living today, differently. I'm sad, but I don't have a fundamental sadness. Yes, I think about all the people who are laid off, who can't work anymore. There's a million different... Permutations. Exactly. So if I let that actually flood me, I would probably just jump off the building, Mm -hmm. you know? But I can. I think about the permutations and I actually think about how extraordinary this life is and how insane and how unpredictable. And I've been used to unpredictable for a while now. So at this point, I'm like, ooh, adventure, anarchy. This is kind of cool. And I've been saying this almost every day this last week. Maybe it sounds strange. I don't know. But it's also on top of the tragic. It's also really... It's interesting, and I cannot wait to see what happens next. So that's the beacon of hope, I suppose, and light. Maybe because I think that way, I can inject it a little bit into my social media presence because it's there's no disconnect there for me. What you see on social media is who I am really at home. I wanted that to happen. Yeah. Yeah, so there's no absolute truth. The way that I view it or envision it is that Even within ourselves, there's no absolute truth because our way of seeing things could change from day to day, from moment to moment. And I still, I'm still in this phase in my life where I wonder if we can create space for each other to feel all these things and think about all these things and remain different, but be free to remain different without, like you said, trying to coerce each other into like adopting some sort of ultimate way of thinking Mm -hmm. and the way I think it relates to what's happening now is there's been such an amazing outpour of generosity from people that I haven't noticed before Mm -hmm. people donating their time and their resources I mean you driving around and making sure nurses get to their place of work even though you're not making money like you did before. That's an ultimate example of 
humans rising to the challenge in a really mm-hmm. beautiful way. And look what it took to get yeah. us there yeah. to like shovel past the bullshit differences that we have and really get to the bottom line, which is like we're animals on this round fucking sphere bouncing yeah. in this galactic soup <laughs> and nobody knows why. Yeah, yeah. I don't even think that question should exist. I think you should be completely obliterated from all the minds of all times ever. The why. The why we're here. <laughs> the why we're here. Yeah. I think it should be exploded and yeah, and existing. And I think it should disappear from all books ever written. <laughs> <laughs> why is that? You know, when existential things bubble up, because I do have a predilection for that. I do have a leaning towards philosophy and mm-hmm. all that crap, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm aware of it, you know, it's okay. Whenever that bubbles up, and this is why I've had good and okay days the last couple of years, it's because I think of my friend, Karina, my best friend, who's, she is a thinker. She's just not an existential crisis thinker. You know, she's extremely smart and literally just cool. Mm-hmm. I think about her and I'm like, oh, she would she would laugh at this. Like, <laughs> she would be like, why so dark? You know, it's not a malicious laugh. She'd be like, can we talk about something else? <laughs> <laughs> and I love that because she's right. You cannot take on the weight of the world. Nobody should have that responsibility. So I shouldn't have the responsibility to answer the why for 7 billion people. That's insane. And it's unhealthy, ultimately. So the other, because it snowballs, you know, why do I have this predilection towards answering the why? That to me is philosophy. Once in a while, rarely you will find a philosopher, and there is a philosopher that laughs in philosophers' faces, who says philosophy wouldn't exist if we didn't think that we have to answer these existential questions because we really don't have to. So what is a philosopher in the end who asks these questions? And I I always try to envision this white, (laughs) wealthy little boy, 10, 11 years old in the 1600s, who's just bored out of his mind. I think I wrote this short story on Instagram (laughs) a while ago who's like stomped his foot on a table walking around the house because he has nothing to do. And he's like, ah, fuck, man, that really hurt. Why do I have to suffer? And so from that moment on, you have philosophy, right? Because you have too much time on your hands. So for me, the answer has been be practical. You sitting on a chair or like laying on your bed, being depressed about the state of the world and how did we get to be here and this tragedy or whatever it is, you know, even before the pandemic, does no good to nobody. And so do something that you're good at. And uh, it's not even art for me. At this point, I haven't been able to watch a movie, honestly, for the last two weeks. I can't watch anything, not even movies that I like. And uh, I haven't been able to draw Uh, And I usually like to do that when I come home from work. But I've been cooking like a crazy person. I love it because it's so far removed from existentialism. It's amazing. Well, you're in the moment and it's tangible. It's right there. And I don't have to think about that I'm in the moment. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. It's not like, oh, now I'm going to cook and I will be in the moment and I'm doing something right. It's not even that. I get home 
it's a natural instinct. For me, you may be good at something else. It's the primordial thing that makes you you. And cooking has always been that for me. Last night, I was like, Lily, how crazy am I? I'm with the fourth jar of quick pickles. I'm making sauerkraut. That's great. We make <laughs> I love pickles. It so much. We grow our yes. own cucumbers and we make our own pickles. I'll give you some. It's amazing. I'm making three breads now. I had to be up on and off till 4 a.m. to put the breads in the fridge to rest for another 16 hours, fold the dough, yeah, whatever. Yeah. I hate setting alarms, but I will always do it for bread. Mm -hmm. It's like a no-brainer to me, you know? So once I found this stride, especially now that I have my own place, it's not like I'm pretending that the pandemic is not happening around me. Even before this hit, I didn't have to think about anything existential for the better part of last year. I come home, I have a kitchen, I am grateful without even thinking that I'm grateful. I'm enjoying myself. I think that's the most grateful you can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that's what we can actually bring into the world, the best of ourselves, and then everything else will flow around us. We cannot save the world. It's impossible. No, <laughs> we can control almost anything. How can you possibly think we can save it? Yeah, so I think that's how you create space unconsciously doing the things that you love to do the most and what you're good at in the end. Thank you for letting me do what I feel good doing. This is what I feel really good doing. Yeah, I think talking is therapeutic, no matter what you talk about. And listening to other people's stories. I think it goes back to what you're saying before, like that little boy who stubbed his toe and started philosophy. You know, he didn't have anything else to do than to think about himself. Oh my God, the terror. <laughs> this gets <laughs> us out of it, right? Connecting with other people. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of people actually in the car who are on the phone all the time. And it used to annoy me until it hit me. I'm like, but this is your lifeline. Have you seen the movie Adaptation? Yes. So there's a scene that I will never forget. And I usually never remember scenes. Meryl Streep is on the phone with her, I think, boyfriend. I think she's high. And they're just humming on the phone. And I loved it because in the car, I have people who just call each other. It's usually young, young women, actually. And they're on the phone and they're like, hi, what's going on? And they're almost like humming. You're not really saying anything. Again, it could easily be construed because I can see my judgmental self being like, why are you on the phone? But that's your lifeline. It's just how you survive. And it's okay. You do you. And I could be an annoyed cab driver and that would create tension. Or I could just be someone like, it's so cool that this person is doing what they want to do. And it gives me joy. That's all you need. That's perfect. That's beautiful. That's creating the space. Yeah. And that's artful. You're saying you're not an artist or you've been reluctant to call yourself an artist. I have a very loose definition. I've come in my <laughs> 42nd year to have a very loose definition of what art is. And it's almost all encompassing. I see it everywhere. And I think creating yeah. space is one of, and this is my judgmental self speaking, because I can't divorce her yet. <laughs> But I think making space for people to be is actually a really high form of art. If we're mm -hmm. going to put a value on it, I have a hard time taking the value out of that. Mm -hmm. It's an incredible thing. Because again, yeah. it's not about you. It's about driving no. that car and allowing somebody the space to be comfortable mm -hmm. in their own skin. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But to counteract that and have the humor and... <laughs> 
you have to hear this. I did get annoyed. It was about a year ago or something, and I had um, it was a shared ride, and it was a very quiet lady. And this other lady jumps in the cab, and the other lady was on the phone, super loud. Her pitch was loud and really annoying, you know, and. Doing what I do best, I put myself in the quiet lady's shoes. But I might have been wrong. And I was thinking, she must be so annoyed. But that was probably me being annoyed. But I'm like, she must be annoyed. I'm in her shoes. I need to say something to make the ride pleasant. But if I say something, judging by the pitch of the other lady's voice, there's nothing that will make her stop. She'll probably be even more loud. And I'll create more chaos. I'm going to shut up while my blood is boiling (laughs) or what is my role here as a cab driver I need to be a mediator I need to make it better for everybody but I could see no way out so the only way out was to shut up and boil (laughs) so the quiet lady I drop her off first the other lady keeps on speaking really loud and I couldn't take it anymore I said something I almost never do of course in my head I was like really mad and So with a really sheepish voice, I said, I am so sorry, you're really loud and we should be aware of other passengers in the car and would you please just take it down a notch? I don't know, however I said it, I tried to be as humane as possible. Well, I was right, the lady got really annoyed and still on the phone with whoever she was speaking, told me, are you attacking me? You're attacking me. And I'm like, no, I'm not attacking you. So I knew I predicted all of this, you know, and it snowballed into something horrible. (laughs) She has that kind of temperament that nothing will calm her down. But I need to look out for myself and I need to say something. So I had to be me too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was that. So it ended pretty badly. (laughs) I imagine she gave you like one star. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. You really can't please everybody. No, fuck no. You're going to be a miserable person trying yeah, totally. But you know, I was thinking really about the Be Kind For Real performance that I do on creating space. And when I started doing that, it actually became increasingly important for me to come to a point of no real judgment. I can have opinions and I can make jokes with Lily in like our private life, but fundamentally to be less and less judgmental. And I saw the Be Kind For Real performance evolve. I've seen myself evolve in the performance and it's it's really cool. And I, I have realized the importance of one being present with someone, listening to their story without any judgment and coming in with little desire to preach and give advice and just this energy that makes the other person feel so comfortable to open up that they will walk out of your meeting with strength and joy to meet the world. It like gives me the goosebumps when I think about it. For the people who don't know, describe this performance a little bit. The two minute spiel. I am on my, it'll be the fourth time I'm doing it this year. So what I do is I sit in a room that's semi-private with a table that's brought from my own house and the chairs from my house. It's a face-to-face conversation for however long you as a participant want to talk. The way I arrange the table is you're sitting facing me, but you're also facing the door to this gallery, a glass door. So you see if people are there waiting to speak with me, right? So it comes down to you and your humanity, basically, 
to think, okay, I need to stop this conversation or I'm going to keep it a little longer and you let the other, so I don't have to make the decision to throw you out of your therapy session. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So what happens is I sit down for, I think the first time I did 10 hours, the second time it was 16 hours, no bathroom breaks. And then the third time was 10 hours. So what you do is you see my advertisement on social media oh, this is weird. Why would I want to go talk to a stranger? But let me go see what's up. And you come and you sit down in front of me. And it's quite emotional, actually. We meet strangers almost every day, even if you just make eye contact with someone with a stranger. It's quite emotional to just sit down with a stranger and start a conversation. Because you are a person with millions of thoughts swirling in your head and you want to talk about so many things. And what do you talk about with a stranger whom you know a little bit from social media, but they don't know anything about you? You can choose to tell me your name or not. And then you just go off on whatever you want. And it's extraordinary because what happens is actually in the end, in 90% of cases, people open up and they tell me secrets. But what does that mean, really, to give someone your secret it's something that weighs you down because you think the world will judge you. But since I don't know who you are, you feel comfortable. It's really like a cab ride. You're just facing me at this point. It is inspired from the cab rides, how I came up with this performance. So you sit there and then you feel uncomfortable and you, you know, we chit chat for a little bit in the beginning and then slowly you start opening up. And once you feel comfortable with me, and I, I think I have the ability to make you feel comfortable within 15 minutes, then you tell me the craziest thing that's ever happened to you. And most of the time I can come up with a very similar story because I've gone through really strange, really sad things. And I came out of it alive and like judgmental less, right? Mm-hmm. So because I have this attitude towards myself and I can project it for you, then again, within about 10, 15 minutes, you're going to tell me that you're abused sexually, that you're raped, that you're experiencing trauma from your last relationship when you can't get over that person. You are part of the BDSM community in this town and you don't know who to speak to about this. You have these crazy thoughts, you're feeling suicidal, things that you haven't even told your partner, your family, your best friend. So I also hear this, you are the first person, or it took me this long to tell my wife that I was abused. It took me 10 minutes to tell you, this is crazy, you know? So my reaction to what they tell me, instead of being like, oh my God, are you? Because that creates tension and makes the person feel insecure. My reaction is, oh, you too? <laughs> <laughs> and I smile. Smiling is such a great thing. That, that's why I really love humor. Last time I was uh, told that someone was abused, I said, uh, well, welcome to the club. And I smiled. Again, not in a malicious way, like gestures that make another feel safe with you. So everything that goes into this performance, it's not choreographed. It's just I became aware of how the things that you do to make someone feel comfortable. And it's the gestures, it's your facial expression. And these things 
came to me naturally. But once you become aware of them, you start cultivating them and making them even better. You know, you're chiseling them with what you're doing. Because I know I'm a naturally gentle person. Even my gestures are very gentle. So I know I've always had this ability to make people feel more comfortable around me. But even more so now that I am an artist and I am doing this performance and I realize the power of words. So I I read literature on the power of words and just the way you speak to someone can really make another feel safe with you. It's incredible. Of course, knowing these things, I also know what can take people off and push people away. And I also have that in me. And I use it when necessary. (laughs) (laughs) Can you give us an example? I've had a couple of people who were abusive. I was physically scared of them at one point, so I had to use the weapon. (laughs) Within the performance? Somewhat related to the performance, not during the actual performance itself, but I've met people around the country in Romania who needed to speak to me, and I became a little bit afraid to continue the conversations with them. Yeah, of course, there's going to be some people who latch on and they want to be your best friend and they want the attention that you just cannot give because you. I didn't feel the compatibility with them. You see, that I think I really love this word, actually, compatibility. I just don't feel the chemistry with somebody and there's people who feel that chemistry that I don't and they're not able to read social cues. And so they go further and further, and that scares me. And so I've had to figure out ways to be gentle, but also firm in saying, stop, this makes me feel uncomfortable. It hurts, I'm sure. And I was told by them, oh, it's because you think something's wrong with me. And I say, no, I just don't think we're compatible. I have many friends with tons of stories, far worse than what you told me about yourself. It's not that. It's just we're not compatible and I will not be your best friend. It's important to keep those boundaries when I feel unsafe. I think it's normal, actually. I felt guilty for a long time. There's one specific person. Oh, man, her story was wow. It was really like an open air performance because I was put in contact with her by someone that I knew and I trusted and This person said, listen, there's a woman in this city. You're in this city right now. Please meet up with her. And from the get-go, it was a really difficult conversation. started on Facebook Messenger, and then it parlayed into a real-life conversation. And after that, it was just relentless. It was a daily thing that I could not keep up with, and I had to tell this person, you have to stop. Again, their story was, oh, man, it blows your mind. But I felt like it was important to tell this person, it's not your story that's making me feel uncomfortable. It's just you have to back off a little bit because I need air to breathe. You're not my girlfriend. You're not my friend. Not in the sense that I don't care for you. I care for you and I care for you having someone to speak to. However, this is just too much for me. I won't be good for you from this point on. So it's really hard for me to say these things to someone who's actually in need of human connection. It has to be done. And I, it's, it's hard, like once you gain that self-awareness, right? Mm-hmm. Once you're like, okay, I'm depleted. I don't have any more emotional, physical energy to give to this person. I need to like regenerate. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard to like deliver that message, but it's so important because it also honors them. And it honors the thing, the dialogue like this deserves all the love and kindness that it can get. And I'm no longer in a position to be able to deliver that to you. 
Yeah. So, I, you know, in the end, it comes down to language and how you say these things to someone. You know, if I was someone else who was not tuned in, I could have been violent in my speech, you know, and say, hey, can you fucking stop this shit? Mm-hmm. You know, use exactly those words. But through Be Kind For Real, <laughs> I really wanted to find, we all have a reaction that's like this, you know, when we want to say something and quite rarely we take a step back and say, okay, hold on, hold on a second. Let me regroup and think about how to say this same thing in a totally different way. And I finally figured out how to do it because my personality is very like, like this. And when you trust yourself, it's even worse. Like, oh, I trust that I'm saying the right thing at the right time. No, no. <laughs> Take a breath. No. Oh, <laughs> man. Oh, thank God I learned to just, like, stop and sometimes wait even a week, which is so hard for me. And it's great because now I can say something, in a more composed tone and I can find this Daniela in me that can say it in a way that will empower the other person and make them feel less shitty about the situation and i'm working on it <laughs> a i don't know if you're an impatient person but i'm a very emotional person it's really hard for me and i think for a lot of us to make decisions based off information most of my decisions are based on what i feel mm-hmm. in the moment Yes. I'm not an explosive type of personality. As you can probably see, I'm pretty chill and tame. And that's probably because my communist upbringing, like don't (laughs) stand out, right? But yeah, I'm very emotionally driven. My husband, on the other hand, he's very good at separating emotion from information gathering. He's very Mm -hmm. pragmatic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm not so much. Oh, that's great. That's a good balance. What do you uh, envision with this pandemic? What's your worst case scenario? Oh my God, I haven't even thought about worst case scenario. Last night I was just laying in my bed crying over that picture of beds. Oh God, I know. I can't, again, it's like empathy, putting yourself in people's shoes and like imagining what it would be like to be one of those people. Mm-hmm. So that's where my head went. I think it's going to be like a financial fucking nightmare, even after the virus itself is contained. There's no system in place to like make this smooth for everybody. So to me, I'm like, maybe this should be the death of capitalism. (laughs) Right? That's what's up. Everybody just needs to drop the dime, drop the money. It just goes to show you how it's a made up thing. It's not really what matters. Mm-hmm. It fucks everything up. I wonder what's going to happen to, this is not my idea, but with real estate, because now a lot of businesses are going to realize they don't need physical spaces to run. And so they're going to figure out a way to not rent mm-hmm. and run their businesses from home. I believe that humans should be in contact, physical contact. And as much as I hate offices, it's not my thing, but... A lot of people thrive in those environments. So it'll be a totally new thing. I really think that that's a valid scenario, that businesses are going to realize we don't need office spaces. I think so. Also, and just in terms of like organization, I think a lot of people are bugging out right now because they feel like their jobs are no longer relevant. 
Mm-hmm. Like all these middle management people who's really like the way their jobs are structured is just to keep tabs on other people. They're not actually makers. They don't sit down and make shit, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Their job is to like schedule meetings and all this shit. I think they're going to be really worried that their jobs don't really matter if people are not centralized in some office somewhere. Yeah. So yeah, I think this is going to change the way people work forever probably and it's probably a really hard lesson for the big like dinosaur companies because Mm -hmm. they're so stuck in the industrial age yeah it's good to give people the freedom to work with other colleagues if they want to or work from home Mm -hmm. i would have never thought in a million years that taxi driving will be considered an essential business in new york of course it is but Mm -hmm. you know now it's like oh bankers and lawyers and architects no, taxi drivers and nurses, baby. Yes. <laughs> it's back to the basics. Yeah. Transportation, health, food, shelter. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's all. But that's all we need as people. If you really think about it. I know. Everything else is a fucking construct. It's crazy. <laughs> Everything. I, I, I mean, that, that's why I'm sure a lot of people, are, we're going to see a wave of high-end depression let's call it high-end depression (laughs) you know because people haven't met themselves at that level of oh i just need basic things you know lily and i were joking the other day because she's a stand-up comic we're like (laughs) that's awesome man like we had all our summer outfits prepared and who's gonna see us where are we gonna wear them and i'm like imagine people who live for influencers and i'm not making fun of them you understand it's like Cause I'm the same. I love going to Beacon's closet, get my outfit. Like I don't even call my clothes clothes. I call them uniforms, costumes, you know, like today I'm in like an Adidas suit and I'm playing hip hop in the car. And the next day I'm in, I don't know, a turtleneck and I'm an English professor, whatever. It's jokes that I make with Lily, but that's how I live. And I love it, you know, but we realize like, you don't need this. You don't need to have an outfit for every single day. You can wear the same shit for a long time mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's okay and the judgment that you felt like was gonna glare from other people based on what you wear and how you look that's falling away and apart and it's great because you realize oh I can be a person I don't have to be judged I don't have to change my outfit every day it's wonderful yeah and best case scenario you can take that energy and redirect it into something tangible and helping people yeah yeah It's so good to talk to you. Yeah, you too. Thank you. We'll keep in touch for sure. And if I can help with anything, if you need anything from New York. (laughs) (laughs) No, just stay safe. Thank you. Stay safe and brace for it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. Blissfully Aware is produced by The Daring, a creative consultancy and transformation partner to purposeful entrepreneurs and organizations. Our theme music is by Ben Tyree. And you can get in touch by emailing info at thedaring.co. I'd love your feedback, your topic ideas, your guest ideas. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review so that other people in our cohort might find it. And I'll see you back here in two weeks. Have a great day, everybody.